at this time to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 this morning. And in a moment, we'll look at the first two verses, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, in a sermon that I've titled, Unholy Saints. Unholy Saints. The word saints has undergone quite the change over the years. In the early days of the church, Christians were called saints. Uh, we, we hardly use that word today because for some reason, when someone refers to a, another believer, another Christian as a saint, it almost seems to conjure up some images of a person who is who's super righteous, someone who is possessing extraordinary spiritual power. So we find it easier, instead of calling that person a saint, we, we, we call people a Christian or a believer or a child of God or any other host of, uh, of titles that we can give them. But we reserve the word saint for someone we believe to be extra spiritual. Think about it. When, when is the last time you used that word to describe a fellow Christian? When is the last time you, you spoke with reference to a believer and called them a saint? Interestingly enough, when the Bible uses the word saint, it is describing the normal, everyday Christian. And the word saint actually appears over 98 times in Scripture. So it isn't some once-in-a-generation type of word that we give to a person and we ascribe to someone who is just extra spiritual and we hardly see these kinds of people, so we give them this title. It's, it's the normal, everyday reference to a believer in Christ. In the New Testament, all Christians were referred to as saints. When you look up the word saint, you find that it literally means holy one. Holy one. That's what the word saint means. Therefore, when the Bible refers to believers as saints and it refers to all believers as saints, it is saying that they are holy people. But how can this be? How can... Christians be holy people. Now, we've been looking at this topic of God's holiness for a little while now, and we've hopefully clearly established that God is holy and that there is an eternal difference between us and God. But now we're being told that believers, based on what we're called in Scripture, saints, are also holy. It doesn't seem to make sense that the Bible would describe sinful people as saints, as holy. The Apostle Paul addresses believers as saints and then he goes on to rebuke them for their foolish and sinful behavior. So basically what we get is we're saints, but we're also sinners. The two, though, don't seem to go hand in hand. How is it that the Bible basically describes unholy saints? From our perspective, a person cannot be both. You're either unholy or you're saint. You're not both. These two words, at least from our frame of reference, are diametrically diametrically opposed to one and another. At least, that's what we thought. Those who are called saints in Scripture were called such not because they were perfect, not because they were pure, but because they had been set apart by God and called to a life of purity. The word holy, which, again, saints literally means holy ones, the word holy has the same basic meaning when it is applied to people as when it is applied to God. It calls attention to how different and set apart God is from us and how perfectly pure God is. But none of us are God. 
None of us are separated and are elevated to be like God. And none of us possess the perfect purity that God possesses. So the question then needs to be asked, how in the world can the Bible describe believers, normal, everyday human beings who believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, as saints, which means they are holy ones when we're clearly unholy? Now let me answer that question by drawing your attention Back to the Old Testament. When God first led the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt, he set them apart. He literally made them their own nation. He called them his own people. He gave them a special commission. He instructed them in Leviticus 11 and verse number 44. He said, For I am the Lord your God. Ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and ye shall be holy, for I am holy. Now when you think about it, this really wasn't anything new. The very first call to holiness wasn't with the nation of Israel there in Leviticus 11.44, but it goes even further back to the first two human beings to ever lived, Adam and Eve. That's when the first call to holiness was, uh, was made. Holiness was the original assignment for Adam and Eve, the first two members of the human race. The Bible very clearly states that we are all created in God's image. And as his image bearers, it is our responsibility to reflect God's character. This is what we were created to do. We were created to shine forth God's holiness to the world because this is part of God's character. Our very existence should be declaring God's holiness to the entire world. It has been said that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. How does that seem to work? How does that seem to work? At times it seems hard to believe that glorifying God and enjoying him fit together. It seems that if we're going to do these, it's got to be one or the other because we can't do both at the same time. We can't glorify God and also enjoy him together and have them, be, have them be united. When we generally think about glorifying God, we think of obedience to God's word. We think of obedience to God's laws, which doesn't originally sound like a whole lot of fun. The enjoyment part doesn't seem to be found in the glorifying God part. Many people look at God as almost a barrier between them having joy. When we think about what brings us joy in life, the first things out of our mouths are rarely to give God glory. When you, if we took a poll right now, what is the number one thing that brings you joy in life? How many of you, without lying to me, could raise your hand and say, giving God glory? Don't you dare put your hand up. <laughs> Evidently, Adam and Eve had the same problem. One of the reasons we struggle with this so much is because we don't understand the difference between happiness and pleasure. When you became an adult, you put away childish things. At least, we should have. I'm sure there may still be some childish things that we cling to or sometimes they cling to us. But for the most part, we put away childish things. Even having done this, we still struggle with knowing the difference between happiness and pleasure. Now let me illustrate it this way. I've committed many sins in my life, but none, not one of those sins ever made me happy. Not one single sin added even an ounce of happiness to my life. In fact, 
what I found was it was always the opposite. Sin has added an abundance of unhappiness to my life. I always find it interesting when people are asked if they had the opportunity to live their lives over again, would they do anything different? And they respond by saying they wouldn't do anything different. How foolish can people be? You wouldn't do anything different? There's not one thing you can think of that would be done differently. If I had the opportunity to live my life over again, there's probably a million things I'd do differently. Now, I will admit that it is entirely possible that with a second chance at living my life, I would probably make a million other foolish decisions. But I can think of numerous things that I would have definitely done differently. Now, the reason I would do things differently is because my sins that I've committed brought me no happiness at all. Things that I thought were going to bring me happiness, I found out that they didn't. And I was made unhappy instead of happy. And you might ask then, well, why did you ever do those things in, your first, in the first place? Well, the reason I sin so much and will continue to sin is because sin brings pleasure. And like everyone who has a pulse, I like pleasure. Pleasure can be a lot of fun. And it isn't always sinful. There are many pleasures that can be found in, in righteousness, but there's a clear difference between sinful pleasures and, and righteous pleasures. You see, sin can bring pleasure, and let's be honest, that's its biggest appeal, right? If it didn't offer us some sort of pleasure, it would never be enticing to us. No one is tempted to sin because it promises to make you unhappy. No one is thinking, no, I'm too happy today. I need to do something that is wrong that is going to make me unhappy because I just need to balance things out here. No one thinks that way. People are tempted to sin because of the pleasure they will get out of it. But that's the difference with sin because despite the fact that sin brings what is only a temporary pleasure, sin never brings happiness. When you think about it, it's really silly that we would ever consider trading our happiness for a momentary pleasure. It seems incredibly counterproductive. It seems downright foolish for a person to knowingly and to willingly do something that is going to make him unhappy. And yet we do these foolish things all the time. The mystery of sin is not only that it is wicked, that it is destructive, but that it is just completely absurd. It is com completely absurd that we engage in it. We know something is wrong, and yet we continue to do it. It is completely ridiculous, and that's why we call it sin. Now, I'm sure that we have all done something that we knew was wrong. If, if you haven't, if you say you haven't, then you're lying. We all fall into this trap. We do what we feel like doing instead of what we know we should be doing. This is what Paul spoke of in Romans chapter 7 and verses 23 and 24. He says, But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. So Paul says, there's a battle raging in my flesh between my flesh and my mind. He says, my mind knows what I should be doing. My flesh says, but it's going to feel so much better to do this. And he says, there is a battle that is raging within me. And he goes on, he says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Paul says he knows in his head what he should be doing. 
but his flesh desires to do something that is going to go against what he knows he should be doing. He describes this constant battle that every single one of us are engaged in between our mind and between our flesh. Our flesh is battling for pleasure at the expense of everything while our mind is trying to keep us away from sin and struggling mightily. The problem that we face is that we're called to be holy and we are not holy. Yet the question arises, if we are unholy, how can the Bible still call us saints, which literally means holy one? As believers, we are holy because we have been consecrated to God. We have been set apart by God. God has called us to a life that is different than anything here in this world. The Christian life is a life of non-conformity. And this idea is expressed very clearly in our passage this morning. Notice what we read in verses 1 and 2 here in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In the Old Testament days, worship and sacrifice were centered on the altar with presentations of sacrifices that were offered to God. For the most part, what we see is that animal sacrifices were made along with some various grain offerings that were given to God, and these were offered as what we refer to as sin offerings. The animals or the grains themselves had no power to forgive or offer atonement for sin, but they were intended to be pictures. They were intended to be, to be symbols that pointed to our full and our complete atonement for sin that would be made by Jesus at the cross. Now, thanks to Christ who went to the cross on our behalf and died for all of our sin and paid the price for all of our sin, we no longer are under the sacrificial system. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful that we are not having to kill an animal and to present it upon an altar as a sacrifice to God. I mean, maybe you're tired of your pet at home and you can see yourself doing that, but that would be crossing the line for me. Animal sacrifices are, are, are not that exciting. Grain offerings are, are no longer necessary, though. They're Animal sacrifices, grain offerings are no longer necessary. In all honesty, again, to, to offer an animal sacrifice to God at this point today would only be an insult to the full and the perfect work of Christ at Calvary. But many people are taking this step further to say that to offer God any sort of sacrifice is insulting to him. But this couldn't be further from the truth. Notice again what we're told in Romans 12 verse 1. It says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now, this is not an animal sacrifice that we're talking about, but the living sacrifice of our bodies, the Bible says here. We're not giving God our animals. We're not giving God our grains, but ourselves. We're giving God ourselves. This sacrifice is not an act of atonement. It is not a sin offering, but it is a thank offering to God. Notice how verse 1 begins. Again, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. I beseech you, therefore, he says. Whenever you come across the word therefore in the Bible, 
you should always ask, ask what it's there for. The word therefore always lets us know that a conclusion is coming, which means it is linked together to a previous thought. It's tying two ideas to, together. So what was just discussed, therefore, here's the conclusion. Here in Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul is linking together everything that has previously been said regarding Christ's saving work on our behalf. In light of everything that Jesus has done for us in bringing salvation to us through his grace, the only reasonable conclusion that we can reach is that we, in turn, ought to present ourselves completely over to God as living, breathing sacrifices. Now, what exactly does a living sacrifice look like? Paul describes a living sacrifice in terms of nonconformity. Notice verse number 2 here again in Romans 12, verse 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, some Christians will take this to the extreme, this, this idea of nonconformity. They will take this to the absolute extreme. Now, it, it is clear that we are to be nonconformist, the Bible says, but it can be difficult to understand precisely what kind of nonconformity is being called for here. It is sad when our version of nonconformity reaches only shallow levels. The easiest way for Christians to not conform is to see what is in style with our culture today and do the opposite. Make sure that we stand apart as much as we can from what's in style today so that we can make a clear line of distinction between us and the rest of the world. Such nonconformists will avoid anything that they deem as worldly. You have some people who take this to the extreme and they'll refuse to wear clothes with buttons on them. Or they'll, they'll refuse to use electricity because things are too worldly. Such things are too worldly. But a superficial style of nonconformity is really the classic trap of the Pharisees. The kingdom of God is, is not about buttons on shirts. It's not about clothes. It's not about hairstyles. It's not about movies or television shows or any sort of trend or fad that's going to come. God is not concerned with what we eat or what we drink because the call of nonconformity here in Romans chapter 12 is a call to a much deeper level of righteousness that goes beyond these external things that we can do. We get ourselves into trouble when we reduce Christianity down to a handful of externals. When we reduce Christianity to even going to church on Sundays, avoiding certain trends, not doing things that are deemed worldly, then we've missed a point of everything the Bible teaches. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 15 and verses 16 through 18. He says, Are you also yet without understanding? Do not ye yet understand that whatsoever entereth in at the mouth goeth into the belly and is cast out into the draft. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart and they defile the man. You see, the problem is not with everything that goes into us, but what proceeds out of us, Jesus says. It's not about the externals. It's about the internals. So many of us missed the teaching of Christ because we still want to reduce Christianity down to all the externals, down to eating and drinking, down to nonconformity with that which we see as being worldly. 
Now, what is sad is that the things that we think are the best examples of how we can show our Christianity are actually the best examples of how we show our lack of Christianity. We're usually quick to show our disgust and our disdain towards the Pharisees, but honestly, they're the ones that we probably resemble the most. When we make trends and clothes and fads and movies and TV shows the test of our spirituality... We're guilty of substituting cheap morality for a genuine one. We do this because we want to avoid really the bigger issue of seeking after God's righteousness. Anyone can avoid certain fads and trends and movies and TV shows. This requires little to no moral courage at all. Where things become difficult is when we try to control this little thing right here, our tongue. Try controlling your tongue. Where things become difficult is where we try to act with integrity and to seek to reveal the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. People think that they are changing their lives for Christ when they stop drinking alcohol. And to be clear, the Bible does speak about drunkenness being a sin, but these same people will continue gossiping, they'll continue coveting, slandering, lying, cheating, stealing, and the list goes on and on and on. But they figure they're changing their lives for Christ because they've got rid of one of these vices. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees and he rebuked them for their preoccupation with external matters. I want you to listen to what he said in Matthew 23 and verses 23 and 24. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done. And not to leave the other undone. Ye blind guides would strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Jesus rebuked them here because they neglected, he says, the weightier matters and overemphasized these small matters. The Pharisees looked at the law and were basically selective in what they obeyed. Jesus told them that. The law and his word, it isn't a buffet where we can pick and choose what we want to do and how we want to obey. Tithes were to be paid, but they were never intended to be a substitute for paying attention to the issues of justice, of mercy and faith, he says. The Pharisees made sure to take care of all of the external, all of the outward matters, but in doing so, they ignored all the spiritual matters inside. Anyone can be a nonconformist for the sake of nonconforming. But that is never a substitute for true faith in Christianity. We're called, all of us, to more than nonconformity. We're called, the Bible says, to transformation. Look again at what it says in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In our culture, a person who conforms is someone who we would say is with it. They're with the times. A nonconformist, we might say of them, you know, they're, they're out of touch. They don't know what's going on. They don't know how things have changed. They don't know how the world is today. They're so out of touch. If our goal as Christians is to be out of touch, 
that I'm afraid to say that we have been incredibly successful at this. We're called to be transformed, which means that we're to rise above the, the forms and all the structures of this world. It means that we don't follow how the world leads, but we rise above the world standards to a higher calling that has been given to us from God. This is a call to be holy, not a call to sloppy, out-of-touchness. Christians who give themselves over as living sacrifices, as it says here in Romans 12 too, and offer their worship the right way are people with a high standard of discipline. They are not satisfied with the superficial forms of righteousness. The saints are called to a grueling pursuit of the kingdom of God. They're called to a deeper spiritual understanding than what resides simply on the surface. The key aspect that is emphasized here in Romans chapter 12 is that of renewing our minds. Look again at what it says in verse number 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. By the renewing of your mind. To be simple, what this means is education. This is serious education. This is in-depth education. This is disciplined education in the things of God. Being transformed by the renewing of our minds calls for a mystery of the Word of God. Basically, Christians need to be people who are transformed and have our lives changed because our minds have changed as we've learned God's Word. The ultimate goal of the Christian is to become more like his Savior, Jesus Christ. Not in the sense that we're going to become like God's, where we're going to be equal with him, but in the sense that we mirror Christ's mindset, that we mirror the perfect humanity of Christ. Now, I will admit that this is an incredibly tall order. Go ahead and be perfect. It's a simple command to give, but what a tall order to actually leave and try and do this. But this is what we're called to do. This is a transformation the Bible speaks of believers undergoing. This transformation, it begins by adopting the mind of Christ. We need to think like Jesus. We must learn to value the things that Jesus values and despises the things that Jesus despises. We need to have the same priorities of Christ and equally be concerned about the weightier things as much as the smaller things. None of this happens, though, until we first learn God's word. You're not going to learn enough about the mind of Christ simply by showing up to church. You're not going to learn enough about God sim simply by, by singing along in church. You have to be seriously committed to God, seriously committed to His Word for this transformation, for this renewing of your mind to actually take place. And this involves sacrifice. It is a call to excellence that we have received, but sadly, only a few are willing to accept the call. The bottom line is that God has called every single believer to be different and to be separate than the world. We're no longer part of the world because as Christians, we're now children of God and our lives should demonstrate that fact. We should never be content with a superficial Christianity and an understanding and a superficial understanding of God. We should never come to the point where we feel content in our level of knowledge, in our level of spirituality, in our walk as a Christian, where we think, okay, I've done it, I've reached it, I've done enough, I'm good from here on out. There is no peak for the Christian. 
We ought always to be growing and maturing in the Word of God. Some of us, honestly, have been feeding off of the milk of God's Word and have never tasted the meat of God's Word, and it shows. I don't care if you've been saved for five years or for 50 years. The length of how long you've been saved means nothing as far as how much you've matured. Milk is good. It's necessary. Ask my son Levi. Literally, that's what is keeping him alive. But milk was never intended to be what sustains us for our entire lives. Ask my two other children. They eat more than just milk. An empty fridge can prove that. It was once full. Thank you, guys. Milk is good and necessary, but it was never intended to be what sustains us for the rest of our lives. We were designed to receive strength, to get greater nourishment, not just from milk, but from meat. But we can only feed on the meat when we're ready for it. And many of us are not ready, even though we've been saved for years. There are far too many babes in Christ in every single church who are content remaining as babes in Christ. We need to be hungering for more of Christ every single day because only through feeding on the meat of God's word will we ever experience true growth and true transformation. Being a saint means that we're separated. The moment God saves us, he begins a process called sanctification, which literally God is is setting us apart for future glory. God is daily preparing us for our reception into heaven one day because you can't enter heaven looking the way that you do right now. You must be sanctified. You're justified the very moment you're saved. But you aren't fully sanctified until you are received into heaven. Basically, you live on earth as a justified sinner, which doesn't make any sense at all. I think it is rather obvious that saints are still sinners. I don't think we have to argue that point. Because not one of us would be bold enough to say that, well, no, I'm the exception, because I'm perfect. But how is it that we could also be just? The simple answer is that we're sinners who have been justified, not by any of our works, but we're justified in God's sight by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is what justification by faith is all about. Because we're acknowledging our lack of ability to justify ourselves and we are receiving justification through the perfect and the complete work of Jesus Christ who went to the cross on our behalf and paid the debt that we could never pay because we can't justify ourselves. When we believe on Jesus Christ as our Savior, God transfers to our account all the righteousness of Jesus. God puts righteousness on our account even though we continue to sin. It doesn't seem to make sense though because God declares us righteous even though we're still sinners and not righteous in and of ourselves. And yet in his eyes, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we're declared righteous, we're justified. And this is what makes the gospel so wonderful. This is why it is good news, because as imperfect as we are, God gives us credit for the perfect righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ, so that we can stand before a holy and a perfect God and be declared justified. Not because of what I've done, not because of the collective body of work of Latham Bible Baptist Church, but because of the work and the finished work of Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord for that. 
It is only through receiving the righteousness of Jesus Christ through faith in Him that we can ever stand before a holy and a perfect God and be declared justified. Now, as awesome and as simple truth as that is, it is a gift that has often been abused. Some believe that if we believe in Jesus Christ, then we never, ever have to worry about changing our lives. Because once God saves us and declares us righteous through Christ, we can never go back to being unrighteous because Christ's righteousness is always upon us. What Christ has done for us is eternal, which is true. It doesn't wear off after a certain amount of time. It is never contingent upon us maintaining it. It is an eternal gift that never fades, that never gets old, not left up, let up, left up to us to hold on to because we'd squander it in five minutes. He holds it all. And because of this, it has been abused. Some people think of their eternal justification as a license to go and to freely sin. As if it's a get-out-of-jail-free card. Why should we worry about sin if we've been saved from sin's eternal consequences? If my good works will never get me to heaven, why should I bother having any good works at all? It's already been done. I'm not saved by my good works. I'm saved by the good works of Jesus Christ who's done it all. I believed on him. So why should I bother with any good works of my own if that's secure, my eternity is forever secure in Jesus Christ and I can't squander it one bit? These are the questions that should never be asked by someone who has truly been saved by the grace of God. If we've truly been saved and justified, then sanctification is the process that will be sure to follow. If there is no sanctification, if there's no changing of that old nature into the new creation in Christ, it means that there was never any justification in the first place. If a person claims to be saved, and yet they continue living the same life they lived before they were saved with no change, it is a good sign that their claim to salvation is probably false. The very moment you're saved, you are justified. God doesn't wait around for you to do some good works to earn your justification. It is immediate. But there is some time that passes between when you are justified and then the completion of your sanctification. The process of God sanctifying you, that begins right away at the moment of salvation. But that process isn't complete until you're received into the glories of heaven. So the process could be lengthy. If you're saved at five years old and you go on to live another 90 years, God's been working on you for 90 years. You were a tough cookie. Therefore, the goal of every Christian should be to seek righteousness, to become more like Christ. Interestingly enough, I've never had someone come to me and ask, how can I become more righteous? I've had people ask, how can I become more ethical? How can I become more moral? How can I become more spiritual, more religious, and so on? I've never had someone come and ask, how can I become more righteous? No one really wants to talk about being more righteous. Maybe people are concerned what they would become, that maybe they're not asking this because they're too concerned that they'll become self-righteous. So they just steer clear of the word righteous altogether. But the goal of all spiritual exercise has to be righteousness. God calls us to be holy, and this should be our goal. 
Jesus stated in Matthew 6, verse 33, he says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We should be seeking after it. The goal of every Christian is righteousness, but how can we know that we're pursuing righteousness? How can we know that we're making progress towards being holy? Well, the Bible makes it clear that the righteous people will be known by their fruits. The fruit of righteousness is that which is produced through us by the Holy Spirit. If we ever expect to be holy, we need to pay attention to how the Holy Spirit guides and directs. The fruit of the Spirit is set forth for us in Galatians chapter 5, and it is in stark contrast to the fruit of our sinful nature. I want you to notice the fruit of our sinful nature spelled out in Galatians 5 and verses 19 to 21. It says, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the list. That is the fruit of the sinful nature. All of those things, a laundry list and many things more. People whose lives are characterized by these sins, the Bible says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this does not mean that if believers sin, that we forfeit our salvation. What the Bible is describing here is a lifestyle of habitually and consistently characterizing, characterized by these sins that are mentioned. The fruit of the Spirit, though, stands in complete contrast to the sins of the flesh. And notice what the Bible says as it describes the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 and verses 22 to 23. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such, there is no law. These, these are the marks of a person who is growing in holiness. These are the marks of the person who is seeking righteousness. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. These are the things that our lives should exemplify, that believers should exemplify. The Holy Spirit is actively working within every single believer. But we must strive with all our might to produce this fruit. The path to holiness is not an easy path. But the Bible does make it easy for us to know what holiness should look like. Our lives should be lives of love, of joy, of peace, of long-suffering, of gentleness, of meekness, uh, of goodness and faith and temperance. Our focus as believers should be on this fruit of the Spirit. And Paul adds this thought following that list. He says, Against such there is no law. And they that are taught Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. We may be unholy saints. But may we be unholy saints on our path to holiness as we focus on becoming more like our Savior every single day. Would you bow with me in prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you for, Lord, how it speaks so clearly as to what our lives should look like. Lord, that list of the fruit of the Spirit ought to be something that we're striving for. 
Lord, that love, that joy, the peace, the long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, all those things ought to be what we're known for as Christians. Lord, because we know already that out in the world are none of these things. Lord, I pray that we would not settle for the pleasures of this world, but that we would, Lord, strive for joy that comes in glorifying you. Joy that comes in producing this wonderful fruit of the Spirit. May we be not just believers who live in the Spirit, but also walk in the Spirit. May our lives demonstrate to not just those that are here within these walls, but those out in the world, that wherever we may go, whoever we may speak to, there is a Christian in their midst because we have a love for our Savior and we desire to live like him every single day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.